Matthew chapter 22. We're going to be looking at verses 34 through 40 today. Before we start, let's ask the Lord to help us. Lord, your word is wonderful. It teaches us. It encourages us. It is the balm of Gilead for us when we are wounded and hurting. It is the rock that we smash ourselves against in our pride, in our hard-headedness. Spirit, we pray that you will do your work. The work of illuminating this text so that we can understand it better and applying it to our lives so that we can live it out. Do not let us be like the man in James who looks at himself in the mirror and then turns away and instantly forgets what he looks like. Expose us this morning. Cleanse us. Challenge us and encourage us in our walk. In Jesus' name, amen. We've all heard the saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Well, as part of the Communist Party's notorious Great Leap Forward in China in 1958, dictator Mao Zedong ordered the extermination of every sparrow in China. They called it the Four Great Pest Campaign. And it was an effort to eliminate disease-carrying rats and flies and sparrows and mosquitoes. They wanted to eliminate the sparrows because they were eating the grain. They even had posters made and posted them all over China of these four pests impaled on a Chinese sword. Urged on by their leaders, the people shot sparrows out of the sky by the thousands and hunted and destroyed their nests. Within a year, the sparrow population was pretty much extinct in China. At first, it seemed as though the plan had had worked. But the problem was, sparrows eat more than grain and fruit. They also eat insects, specifically Locust insects. So, with their natural predator gone, the swarms of locusts were huge in the late 50s in China and and swept and swept over the land, eating everything in their path and creating what has come to be known as the Great Chinese Famine. By the early 60s, tens of millions of Chinese peasants were dead from starvation. Starved to death, by an imbalance created with the best of intentions. This kind of imbalance can happen in our spiritual lives as well. We can have the best intentions regarding loving God and loving our neighbor, yet if we're not careful, we can create a great imbalance in our own life, which will reap Horrible consequences. Look with me at verse 34 in chapter 22. 
But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So this is the third trap that the, that the Jewish elite were trying to ensnare Jesus in. The Herodians, as we remember, had tried to trap Jesus using taxes. The, the Sadducees had tried to trap Jesus where the resurrection and life afterlife are concerned. And now a lawyer, a Pharisee who is a lawyer, steps forward and asks him what the most important commandment is that God gave. Now these lawyers, they're also called scribes throughout Scripture. These lawyers were experts in the law. They spent hours and hours discussing and, and, and machinating over the law. By the time of Jesus... They had categorized the law. They had counted the law. They had actually counted the number of laws God had down to 613 laws, 248 positive and 365 negative. And as they counted the law, they realized that no one person could could uphold the law. So what they started to do is they started then to further categorize the law into what they deemed as heavy and light laws. Heavy being more important laws and light being, well, less important laws. So that, so that people could major on the heavy and minor on the light. So there could be some modicum of success where the law was concerned. And this lawyer wanted Jesus to weigh in on this debate. But the question wasn't a sincere one, was it? If you look at verse 35, it says right there that he asked this to test him. Another trap. Now we're not sure, and in my research... We can't be sure how exactly they were trying to entrap him. Perhaps they were hoping that he would would say some heresy in his answer or a misstatement or perhaps paint himself into a corner that they could pounce on. Whatever the motivation, they were trying to get something on Jesus that they could condemn him with. They were trying to condemn him. But Jesus, once again, answers in such a way as to not only silence them, but in in the Gospel of Mark, the lawyer actually agrees with him and commends Jesus for his answer. But Jesus also wants to teach another important principle to his people, to us. And that is gospel balance. Gospel balance where loving God And loving your neighbor is concerned. Because we have a tendency towards imbalance. Many times we can overemphasize our personal piety in our pursuit of loving God. We can overemphasize our personal piety in pursuit 
of our love of God. Jesus answers the lawyer here with the great Shema in, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6, 5 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your might. The great Shema was kind of the, the Old Testament counterpart to, to our Lord's Prayer. It was centering. It was something that, that was central in their faith. Teaching the very central tenet of their faith, which is to love God. That, that text in, De- in Deuteronomy goes on to talk about how important it is that they teach their children this very thing. To love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Talks about talking about it with your children when you lie down and when you get up and when you walk along the path, meaning at all times. It tells them to bind it on their hands so that they can see it. It tells them to write it on their doorposts and gates so that every, t- every day when they come in, they're seeing this central principle. Love God with everything. Everything that you are. Jesus places loving God, being consumed by love of God as all important, doesn't he? From the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, all the way through Revelation, we see this centralness of loving God with everything that you are. We'll see it, when you read Revelation, you see it over and over again, of these people just focused on God. And being perfectly content, forever loving Him. Giving their hearts to Him. That's the core of the Bible teaching. Love God. I remember my mother, when we three children left the house, she, she had poured so much into us that, that there was a great void created in her life. And I remember her telling us that she, she used to drive around town praying and asking the Lord to show her what she should be doing now. What should I be doing with all this time? Lord, what am I going to do? My kids are gone. I remember her telling me one time that she was driving up Katuna Street. It means nothing to you. It means everything to me. To Katuna Street right in uh, the center of town. And she felt God saying to her as she was praying, what am I to do? What am I to do? Lord, what am I to do? And he said, just love me. Just love me. What a wonderful pursuit. Just love God. That's what we're to do. Commentator Daniel Doriani writes, We love God with our heart and soul when we embrace Him with our deepest convictions and commitments. We love God with our mind when we understand our past and our present as He does and dedicate our future plans to Him. We love God with our strength if we follow Him with a determined will in the face of adversity. God is calling each of us to love God with all of our faculties. Striving to love God with everything that we are. 
all the rest of the commandments, he says, depend on this. However strange it is to hear this pursuit of loving God with everything can also lead to danger. Strange to hear. There's danger in that pursuit. As with all good things that God calls us to, our flesh takes that and it warps it, doesn't it? We can become imbalanced in our love for God. I think that's why he gives us both here, doesn't he? Love God and love your neighbor. He's, he's teaching us how to be balanced in our love for God. Not that we can love him too much. I don't think that's possible. But we can become imbalanced in our love. As we say, as the saying tries to capture, we can become so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. So focused on loving God, so focused on knowing God, so focused on, on our, our personal holiness because of our love of God, our personal piety, that we forget about the other side of the coin. Loving our neighbor as ourselves. See, that's the great equalizer, isn't it? That's the great balance. Our love for God is actually expressed externally through our love for each other. That's the barometer, brothers and sisters. You want to know how much you love God. You want to know how much of your heart, if you will, if you want to quantify it, is God's. How are you loving your neighbor? How are you loving others? How are you sacrificing for them? How much time do you give them? We saw in our public reading of Scripture today that if anyone says he loves God yet hates his brother, he's a liar. That's the principle that God is getting at there. John is saying you cannot say you love God and not love others. It it doesn't make sense. It's two puzzle pieces that absolutely do not fit together. The two are inextricably linked. If there is one, there must be the other. It's as if loving the neighbor is the, is the kind of counterbalance to loving God. Keeping that gospel balance alive in our, in our lives. But when that counterbalance is removed, that's when the imbalance happens in our lives. It creates a terrible imbalance in the Christian life. We see this most clearly in in Christian history through the Desert Fathers and the monastic movement. Starting in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, people began withdrawing away from people because they wanted to pursue the holiness before God, because they loved God so much, they would withdraw out into the deserts. They looked around and they saw the world and people as temptation, and so they pulled away from people. Scores of accounts of extreme solitary living in the name of loving God in pursuit of holiness. 
They removed themselves from society and lived highly ascetic lives, living alone for decades in caves. Such as the case with the ascetic Theodore who refused to even visit his mother for decades because he claimed, Matthew 10, he who loves his mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. So he withdrew even from his family. The ascetic life can seem to us noble, can't it? The ascetic life can, can be seen as uber-godly, wearing robes tied with rope away from people. But it's not. It's incomplete. It's only one side of the coin. It's only one side of the balance that we need to have. But there's an equally dangerous equally danger on the other side as well. If we love our neighbors as ourselves to the exclusion of loving God leads to an overemphasis of social concerns. In January 1987 an article appeared in the magazine, The Christian Century, which said, Christians are in in, in an awkward intermediate stage in Western culture. Having once been culturally established, they are now, now yet clearly disestablishing. This helps make liberalism attractive, it wrote, since it keeps people vaguely related to the church. In transition... We attempt to show that Christians are really interested in what the best in our culture is interested in. Thus, we translate the Christian teachings on loving our neighbor into a Marxist revolutionary one. Or we translate salvation into self-fulfillment. Pastors speak out on important issues showing society that the church cares in the same way that society does, and in the same manner. The article concludes by saying, we keep people interested in church even even though they no longer worship its God. How prophetic. We see that in the liberal churches all around us. This happens when we, the church, rush to fulfill the command to love our neighbor to the exclusion of loving God. Leads to what has become known as the social gospel. Social gospel arose in the late 19th and early 20th century when the church sought to fulfill verse 39 here, among others. To love your neighbor as yourself and help in the problems of poverty and health and education and crime and welfare. There's no doubt that we are called to love our neighbor in these ways, helping the poor, caring for the sick, concern for the broken world around us. But the difference is the social gospel, they equate the gospel with the betterment of society. Thus, if we feed enough people, educate enough children, dig enough wells, then we are actually fulfilling God's mandate. As you can see, the social gospel is attractive for a bunch of reasons. 
For one, it's tangible. You can actually see things happening. And we like that. Can't always see the spiritual happening, but you can see when you feed a poor person. It's also doable. It it kind of feeds our self-righteousness and our works righteousness. It's also acceptable. The world loves it when we do this. That's how the world sees good. But for the Christian, we have to be careful. We have to be careful. It's so easy to start seeing the helps that we give as an end in itself. And not a means for the gospel. Because that's what it is. It's a means for the gospel. It's a means of God loving us and thus thus God loving the world. Our flesh tends to disconnect the flower from the root here. Our love for a neighbor without love for God. And that was the outcome of the social gospel movement. We move the weight on the other side of the scale and we slowly lose God. Richard Niebuhr, a theologian who lived during the peak of the social gospel movement, says the trajectory is this. The social gospel ends in a God without wrath, bringing men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without the cross. That's the end of that path. Why does it end like this? Because we think we can actually solve the problems of the world from the outside in. When really, the Gospel says, no, it's an inside out. We start thinking the problem is external. And so we put this this external balm on it. We start believing that the social ills are the issue when Scripture teaches us that no, the issue is not outside in. It's inside out. The problem is inside. The problem is in our heart. That's what the Bible tells us throughout. And because the problem is in our heart, that's why the world is the way it is. We are sinful from birth, Psalm 51 tells us. We are filled with wickedness and greed and depravity, Roman 1 tells us. Our heart is wicked and beyond cure. Who can understand it, Jeremiah 17 tells us. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that he came that we might have a new heart. That's what Ezekiel 36 was saying. This Messiah is going to come and replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. But people's desires will actually change. That's what happens when you give your life to Christ and the Spirit comes in and transforms your heart from stone to flesh. Your desires start changing. And thus, your behavior starts changing. And thus, your sphere of influence starts changing. Inside out. 
So if you're frustrated with the corruption in government, certainly work towards reform, get involved, but don't become disconnected with God. It's a, it's a means to an end. Share the gospel. If you're frustrated with greed in society, work to change it. But don't forget, the gospel is the real answer to greed. The generosity of God in Christ changes hearts. If people are thirsty, dig a well. But never become so imbalanced to think that water will, will slake their thirst. Because the real thirst is a spiritual thirst that only the living water of Jesus can solve. If your heart breaks towards the poor, go and give to the poor. Get involved. Feed the hungry. But remember the whole time that their ultimate need is not a loaf of bread, but the bread of life. It's a means to an end. We used to have a spaghetti dinner here where we supported the West Side Food Pantry. A couple hundred people would come and and eat and, and we would raise money and give it to the West Side Food Pantry. But over the years we found out that the West Side Food Pantry was just handing out meal vouchers. So we approached them and we said, can we get involved in such a way as not just give money, but to give out the gospel too? They didn't want to do that. So that's why we don't do a spaghetti dinner anymore. Because we have to hand out a cool glass of water in the name of Jesus. If you don't do it, you're danger of the social gospel. Brothers and sisters, we have to keep our scales balanced in order to fulfill this great commandment that Jesus gives us. And for that, we have to look to Jesus for the gospel balance, the perfect gospel balance. I was reminded this week of a a saying by Murray McShane that uh, we were using in our discipleship this week. He says, for every one look at sin, take ten looks at Christ. For every one look at sin, take ten looks at Christ. And that's a great principle to use. We must always remember that we wander. So we must stay uh, intentionally and intimately involved with Christ. That's how we keep balance of this great commandment here. We must look to Christ over and over and over again for this balance. For he's the only one who loved the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his mind, with all his strength, and loved his neighbor as himself. He's the only one that did it. So let's take a few looks at how Christ loving loved God perfectly. Christ was thoroughly dependent on God. John 5:19 Jesus told the crowds the son of God can do nothing by himself. Jesus showed his love for God by being unabashedly dependent on him. Unabashedly dependent on God the Father. We chafe at dependence, don't we? 
I tell people in, in my discipleship spheres that, you know what maturity looks like? Maturity looks like dependence, not independence. Not self-sufficiency, dependence. And that's what we see in Jesus. But we chafe at that. P.D. James in Devices and Desires writes, We need all of us to be in control of our lives. We shrink them until they're small and mean enough so we feel we can control them. That's what we love. We love control. We want independence. We want undependence in our life. Oswald Chambers wrote, whenever God touches sin, it is independence that it touches. Isn't that great? And that's how Jesus lived all the way to the end, dependent on his God. Even in the garden saying, not my will, but yours be done. So as we seek to be independent, may we take ten looks at Christ. We also, we see Jesus loves God perfectly through his obedience. Not just his dependence, but his obedience. John 4.34, he told his disciples, My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. My food. The most basic thing is to do his will. Is to obey him. To please him. Jesus not only obeyed all 613 laws outwardly, but perfectly inwardly. If you remember, we learned in the Sermon on the Mount that it's not just the external, but it's the internal motivation for things too. He desired to obey. He wanted to obey. He wanted to please his Heavenly Father. And Jesus told us how to love him. If you want to love me, what did he say? If you love me, obey my commands. Theologian Frederick Beekner put it this way, to be commanded to love God at all, let alone in the wilderness, is like being commanded to be well when we're sick, sing for joy when we're dying of thirst, and to run when our legs are broken. Brothers and sisters, doesn't it sometimes feel that way? Obey, obey. It can be crushing. It can be crushing. But where we fail, Christ succeeded. Take one look at your sin and take ten looks at Jesus' righteousness. This is how we keep our balance. But Jesus balances out everything it bounces out loving God perfectly by loving his neighbor too. And we see this through his incarnation, don't we? John Howard Griffin was a white man who believed he could never understand the plight of African Americans until he became one. So in 1959, he darkened his skin through medication, through sun lamps and stains, and he traveled throughout the South. His subsequent book, Black Like Me, detailed out the hatred and humiliation and shame that blacks understood at that time, all written by a first-hand account. Through the Incarnation, Jesus experienced humanity firsthand. He experienced the hunger and the sadness and the pain, the hatred, the humiliation, 
the shame. He was willing to go through all that. Why? Why was he willing to go through all of that? To go from heaven to earth. Because he loved us. Even when we were yet against him. Even when we were yet sinners. Even when we hated him. And didn't want anything to do with him. He loved us. And came. C.S. Lewis wrote, The Son of, man, Son of God became man to enable men to become sons of God. But ultimately, Jesus loved his neighbor perfectly through the sacrifice on the cross. In John fifteen thirteen, Jesus said to his disciples, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. There can be no greater love shown than giving your life. And we have to keep our balance when thinking of Jesus' sacrifice. Because Jesus didn't come to give us a longer, healthier life. He came to give us eternal life. He did not come to educate our minds, but to transform them. He did not come to reform crime, but to be convicted of our crime. Jesus did not come to wipe out poverty, but to wipe out sin. His cause was not to ensure that all the laborers were treated justly, but to justify a people for God. And he did this through his atoning work on the cross. The most loving act in history. And that's the act that we celebrate each week here. That's why we celebrate this every week. The juice being Christ's blood, reminds us that we are forgiven. Hebrews 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So as we take the juice this morning, remember that you are forgiven. Take one look at your sin and ten looks at Christ. The bread represents his body. We're reminded in 1 Peter that he bore his sins, our sins, in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. Brothers and sisters, when you take the bread this morning, remember that your sins are paid for in Christ's body fully. Your debt is paid. Take one look at your debt and ten looks at Christ's payment. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this word that you had for us this morning. And I pray, Lord, as we now we come to the Lord's table, your table, that is just not a reminder, but a spiritual nourishment for our soul, encouragement for us as we take the bread, and drink the juice, that you help us to remember what you did for us, your great love for us, and your great love for God and being obedient to death, even death on a cross. In Jesus' name, amen.